0: You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to The Strong Towns Podcast. There's an article from Brookings, about prioritizing people over projects that caught my eye. At Strong Towns, we've been talking a lot about the idea that our infrastructure does not serve humans the way that it should. And to hear this coming out of the Brookings Institute, I thought this sounds really fascinating. We're able to get one of the authors, Joseph Kane, on the podcast this week to chat with us about this. Joe, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Chuck.
0: Hey, where are you at today?
1: i'm I'm still in d c, although um things are still you know, slowly, hopefully opening up, but but we'll see,
0: ok. Is it not too cold there?
1: Not as cold as Texas at the moment.
0: Okay. yeah <laughs> well, and you have heat and and electricity, and everything is functioning normally, so we're in a good place, right?
1: That's right. That's right.
0: Talk to me a little bit about the premise here. The headline obviously caught my eye. You know, prioritize people, not projects. You focus on legacy infrastructure. Can you just talk a little bit about what you mean by legacy infrastructure and and, and maybe a little bit about how it's not serving people? Because I, I think a lot of us assume that infrastructure is designed to serve people. Where are we falling short here?
1: If anything, the pandemic and the recession have highlighted some failures and inefficiencies and inequities in our existing infrastructure systems. And so in Washington at the moment, but of course, all across the country at a state and, and local level, you know, we're, we're fundamentally questioning, I think, you know, what what is not only needed to to sort of a rescue agenda, if you will, but also a recovery agenda of how can we look at, at infrastructure as one of the pillars of that, that uh, recovery agenda? And So often, you know, we think of build back better (laughs) naturally means building more. More, right. Or building (laughs) new. And so questioning that assumption that sometimes it means maybe building differently. um, Maybe it means building less. Maybe it even means taking things down (laughs) that we have put up that have created um, tremendous barriers, um, particularly for lower income households and communities of color when it comes to transportation, the inability to access certain services, jobs and whatnot, affordability of services. So we think of, of our water systems, our energy systems that many households have struggled to even access those those essential services. And then just health and safety too, of, of the fact that many of these systems we have built out over, over the course of many decades were originally designed to provide that capacity, that connectivity, but, but have left this, this legacy, if you will, of costs and uh, particularly unequal costs hitting different types of people in different places. And so as, as we think of not just the COVID moment, but, but just in general moving forward, you know, what, what is a 21st century infrastructure vision that we should be pursuing as a country? Um, it can't just be about the shiny new object, right? and and just building new stuff, but but actually questioning, rethinking, and, and hopefully uh, rejiggering what we've already built out um, to to serve more people in more places in in better ways.
0: It does seem like there is this dichotomy or this this distance between our intent and the results of our intent. Especially when we look back in 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 history, I think we've kind of summed that up today by saying the people back then were evil or they were racist or they didn't you know ponder all this stuff okay, maybe that's true how would we have in maybe in retrospect or 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 maybe today I guess whatever way you'd want to take it how do we think about these things differently so that we don't wind up in the same place. I often struggle with this idea that, you know, the people of the past were just awful people and today we're so much better. So we're (laughs) going to, you know, our results will be so much better. How do we get here? I mean, what are the steps we took that kind of created this, this situation, which I agree is, is obviously there.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, Chuck. I mean, I think there's there's two parts to this. Of one, there there was kind of an intentionality I think in in some ways of we think of individuals like Robert Moses, right, in in New York for for listeners who aren't familiar, was was considered the master builder, you know, of New York City from the 1920s to the 1960s. And he got projects done, right? And we often hear from federal, state, local leaders, you know, we just need to get stuff done, right? right. And
0: we know what to do. Right. Let's just get out and know, get it done, right?
1: <laughs> but but when you say get it done, you know that that can create ripple effects for all types of infrastructure users in different communities. And so while while individuals like Robert Moses had an intentionality of getting projects done, that has left some communities divided in some ways in, in terms of, again of access, affordable uh, services, and whatnot. And then I think there's this other part beyond the intentionality of just deferred maintenance, disinvestment, displacement, that maybe that wasn't the original intent, right? I, I don't think even 50, 60, 70 years ago, uh, planners and, and local leaders wanted to, To in all cases, we do, we do know that there was intent in some cases of, of redlining and whatnot, but probably in some cases, they thought they were doing the right thing, right? By right. putting in highways, making it easier for cars to get from the suburbs, downtown, and vice versa. But then that left some really... Deeply entrenched costs that really now I think regions are are grappling with just because these systems are at the end of their useful life, right? As as engineers like to put it, and so we're we're forced to have to question what are we doing with these these older assets, and is there a better, uh, more equitable path forward? And so I, I think it's a balance of you know both intentional planning and intentional decision making in that what we're building and what we're maintaining. Is serving more people in, in 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 equitable ways, but also acknowledging that, hey, even in the unintentional ways that we're planning these projects and developing them, that probably isn't working either. Um, so so that's that's really the 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 point at which we are in, I think nationally, and, and certainly there's there's regional variety in that too.
0: Right. The write-up that you put together, the, the first part of this, talked about Flint a couple of times. And and I think Flint is this interesting case because when when I look at Flint. I see a city where through the best of intentions, we went in and built a system that was not scaled to the community. It, it 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 was not the right answer for them for where they are. Some of the pushback that I get from that is, well, you know, okay, Chuck, would you have given them a lesser system? You know, that's, you know, why don't the people of Flint deserve a great system? But when we look at Flint, what we see is that the level of the intensity of maintenance of that system, the amount of legacy costs that it has, has really squeezed out in many ways what the community has been able to do and and build off of. How do you thread that needle? How how do you look at a place like Flint and say, okay, we want to do something that really empowers the people there and helps them achieve their hopes and their dreams and their aspirations. But yet the approach that's there right now is obviously despotic and, and not helping them in any way. How should we think about a place like Flint if we want to use the words build back better or if we want to think about, look, what is a reimagined infrastructure investment in a place like Flint? What does it look like?
1: Right. No, you're you're totally right, Chuck. And and what I like to say is infrastructure investments are generational. They're meant to be long-lived in order to be cost effective, we we consider a successful quote unquote (laughs) project is one that that lasts for many years and, and is, you know, not functionally obsolete, whatever wording you want to use. But with that, that long life comes uh, both benefits and and harms that are also long lived. And in, in the case of a place like Flint, where, you know, demographically, economically, environmentally, just physically, uh, was a was a very different place uh, when some of these systems were built out uh, 50 60 70 however many years ago and so it's a challenge in that there's a moving target right so in as much as as federal leaders but also state and local leaders are investing in in these facilities in the case of Flint in particular that its water system has has attracted you know the most interest understandably um, but but it's this question of of the trajectory of places, right? And and sort of the divides both between different places, right? When you think of of a place like Flint versus uh, Seattle or Boston, you know, places that are growing, attracting more people, have more revenue to spend on new flashy <laughs> infrastructure projects. Flint doesn't have that either. But but even within places like Flint, within regions. There can be tremendous disparities in the, the economic profile of, of households, uh, the environmental just injustices that we're seeing in these regions. And so it's hard. It's it's hard, Chuck, in, in the sense that Flint, the intentionality was to provide that reliable, predictable uh, service for many years. But as that, that market circumstance has changed. Current leaders are kind of being dealt a hand that's impossible to win. Right? <laughs>
0: There's Yeah, they're struggling under the legacy costs of a system that I did the calculations once, and this was years ago, looking at their numbers, and it was something like sixty thousand dollars a household is what was needed to to fix this system. And I'm like, most of their homes aren't worth that much. Like, I I wonder if the people of Flint would rather just have the cash, you know? And is you know is there a different system? I, As an engineer, I feel like when we ask engineers the question of what should be done, we should never be surprised when we get a big engineering answer to that. It does seem like in Flint, there's a more nuanced kind of approach. And I I wonder if there's room for that in the current dialogue and, and how we would create
1: that room. That that's right, and and I should also have started this by giving full credit to my my co-author of this piece, uh, Shalini Vajhala, who who emphasizes these these same points, Chuck, of uh, building resilience. Right, we hear that as a buzzword often uh, mentioned in in so many different ways in terms of climate and and whatnot, but also fiscal and and financial resilience, and that's directly connected to the economic uh, strength and and opportunity in in markets like Flint. If we are not <laughs> By by, we I mean federal, state, local, but also private leaders too. If we are not rethinking and calling into question how we have decided to invest in certain projects, how we're measuring, you know, and evaluating the performance of these, these uh, facilities, uh, if we are not engaging um, the public in new ways, uh, right now, you know, we still rely on a highly reactionary ad hoc process, I would argue, where there's very little time, little flexibility uh, to consider new alternatives. And, and it's understandable when 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 it, it's not just the case for, for places like Flint, but but other regions too, where, especially right now, given the fiscal constraints uh, of of coming out of COVID, you know, we're just going to kind of build more of the same doing, you know, the same designs, technologies, processes we've had, because that's just what we're, we're used to. That's what we're familiar with. We can better understand what the costs are in that. But but by doing so, we're overlooking and continuing to to embed ourselves uh, into creating systems and designs that that just don't serve all people uh, in all, in all places. So it has to start with that engagement aspect. It has to start with questioning how can we be more economically resilient uh, and hopefully opportunity rich in in acknowledging the needs and concerns of many different individuals uh, in in these in these processes.
0: Your report, Gets into some data that I've seen in other places, but you you share it about the disparities in uh, pedestrian deaths, uh, what I would just call people who are not in a vehicle uh, getting killed, and and how disproportionately this affects, uh, you know, communities that are are low on car ownership and high on walking and. And you, you, you take the next step and point out how, you know, a lot of the problems that we see are neighborhoods without sidewalks, neighborhoods with disproportionate levels of auto infrastructure, and it's not safe to walk. And it seems like there is a, a mismatch between the investments that can be funded, let's say from a local standpoint, and the investments that are most needed from a human standpoint, Part of that mismatch to me feels like this disassociation between, you know, a federal government and and a very like local block level need. Can you talk a little bit about that disassociation and and how do we start to bridge that gap a little bit? It seems a, a stretch to me, and I, I think maybe this is where you and I are are have a different levels of cynicism. It seems a stretch to me to think that you know a. Infrastructure bill targeted in the trillions is going to be nuanced enough to grasp the local sidewalk issue in, in a struggling neighborhood. Talk about that a little bit, if you would.
1: Totally, and and you know this is covered in many other <laughs> many other pieces that I've done uh, as well as with my colleagues. And the reality is, state and local leaders are the primary owners and operators of our infrastructure. Um, CBO, you know, more than three quarters of public spending on our transportation and water systems every year is at a state and local level. So they are the ones who are grappling with these challenges head on. And they are also going to be the ones that are going to lead the solutions here. But with that said, what is the federal role? There is a federal role, I think there has to be. um, (laughs) And the federal role is one of not only just just sort of regulation and and oversight and and just, you know, I think often um, the media especially sees federal government as, you know, with a trillion dollars, two trillion dollars. Yeah. It's the it's the silver bullet, right? If well, if we throw enough money right. at the problem, it's gonna kind of go away. And that could not be further from the truth. I'm I'm not saying that we don't need more investment, we do, <laughs> yeah. but, as nationally, but but we need to be more targeted, intentional using newer measures uh, to evaluate what we're investing in, why we're investing it, how we're investing it. And so if states and localities are going to be in the driver's seat to make these decisions, they need greater flexibility and capacity. So in other words, how can federal leaders give state and local leaders that additional fiscal technical capacity, flexibility to try out new ways of doing things? So that that isn't going to rely on the same models probably as as in years past of, of just you know the same formula programs the same uh, overemphasis as 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 you described it well Chuck on on auto oriented development we're not living in the 1950s any longer when when our federal programs were designed I, I, you can probably imagine you had a bunch of, of men literally men right <laughs> cigars in a room probably in Washington. And we're still living in that system, in that policymaking um, system, that framework. And so we have to recognize at a federal level that that isn't working anymore, right? Like we cannot just throw more money at this, that we need to honestly question how we're governing our infrastructure, but also what is our national vision for infrastructure. And that has to involve uh, greater capacity for state and local leadership on these issues, but crucially experimentation and scaling of that experimentation so that regions can look to each other for the leadership, the best practices and and the failures that are gonna come with, with experimentation. You know, you gotta, for every step or two you walk, you're probably gonna trip and, and right. expected.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think we have, or can build up a tolerance for failure? Because I, I, I do feel like that's, we're seeing right now as you and I are recording this, this big infrastructure failure in Texas yep. with their electric grid. And the fact that in a moment of high stress, their coal power plants are not are not working Their you know the their system is breaking down and there'll be postmortems on this and i'm sure it will have political spin to it it seems like we have acclimated ourselves to having our failures be large and catastrophic because of we have this kind of built in and i feel like this is maybe a a, a byproduct of affluence we have this built in aversion to small failures how do we create that room for small failures? Is that a is that something we can do from a policy standpoint? Or as a culture, are we just not ever going to accept that? How do we build that in?
1: Yeah, I think it's twofold, Chuck. Going back to the to the federal side of things, it's it's the lack of understanding of even what a success or failure is. We are so, <laughs> we are so confused nationally, I would argue at the moment where we think the whole point is just the money, right? Like we're going to uh, say that, right. we, you know, the alarm bells are going off. The point is almost the money.
0: I'm going to ask that about you next. Cause it's infrastructure is all about capital flow, right? Like just get the money
1: out. And yeah. it just can't like, if we're starting the conversation there nationally, mm-hmm. we've already lost, right? Like right. we are missing that step of what are our objectives, right? Like what what is infrastructure intended to do? Where 50 years ago, we probably would have argued it was about connectivity. It was about building a lot of stuff, which we needed, we, right? We built out this huge interstate highway system, the marvel of the world in many ways, and kind of mission accomplished, right? It's built out. Now <laughs> we're at a point where this stuff's getting older. It's right. inefficient, it's inequitable, it's throwing us into to all sorts of hazards and dangers with a changing climate and a changing economy. Uh, new technologies. So we need to fundamentally question nationally, what is our vision? And as part of that vision, what are the objectives that we're striving for? I would argue resilience, uh, technological innovation, probably workforce development too, not just, just physical projects, but but the people who are managing these projects. And those have to be the core kind of objectives that that we're measuring our success and failure against. That's kind of at a national level. Hopefully that can help inform, but not dictate, <laughs> what state and local leaders are already dealing with. They know this, right? Like they don't have the the luxury to wait. Um, they've, as I like to say, they've, they've wadded up the chewing gum, they've put on the duct tape, they've kept hey, things, Yeah. Right? They, to your point on, you know, how do we accept even incremental failures? I don't think that's ever like the goal setting out is like, yeah, we're going to fail. Right. Like, no, it's like, we want to, we want to succeed. We want to try new things out. And, and from many of the conversations I've had with uh, leaders in, in transportation departments, uh, uh, water utilities, other community organizations, they're really, really trying hard, but, but they only have so much capacity and so much time and so many resources to do this stuff. And so that's the key here is, is, as you said, creating that room, creating that space where we can try new things in the, in the hopes that it can serve more people in better ways. We're aiming for success, but we have to realize that it's not always going to be success, that, that these are new models, that these are new strategies, and there are going to be hiccups along I, the way.
0: I like the fact that you, a couple times here in our conversation, but also in your your writings have said, we, we may find ourselves spending less to get more that is so anathema to the way economists approach this and i actually have this thing that i do where whenever i'm listening to an economist i will time how long does it take them to recommend infrastructure spending because they they all it's like it's like they have a a built-in obligation as an economist to recommend infrastructure spending as just this catch-all thing you do. And, and I don't care who it is, left of the political spectrum, right of the political spectrum, you know, Keynesian, Austrian, like whatever their mindset is, they all come back to, you know, well, what should we be doing? We should be spending more money on infrastructure. What is the hang up there? Like why, why do we have this sense that infrastructure is this magic, you know, amulet that just like solves all of our economic problems? Can you illuminate that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I think it's especially Chuck during times of recession, right? Where right. Uh, going back ten years ago with the Recovery Act during the Obama administration, we know there was an infrastructure push. Going back to, of course, the the 1930s, the New Deal and FDR and 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 what he did, and and the idea that that just investing more in infrastructure can stimulate economic growth. And there is definitely truth to that, especially it, definitely when, true, right? when it comes to construction, when it comes to immediate just getting more people technically on the job, right? That's pumping through capital spending in particular, that's pumping more money into the economy where businesses, contractors are buying more materials, they're hiring more people. So that matters very much in, in the short term. And that's why we see economists emphasize Including myself, you know that that these can have uh, a stimula uh, effect. Uh, we think of spending as a share of GDP you know it's I think that's a more common measure used than just sort of the total, right and we look at comparisons right. across even globally how much the u s is spending compared to to China and other countries but but you're you're totally right in that by doing that and and it it makes great for like you know lobbying speak, especially in Washington, where it's like if we we spend this much, we're going to hire this many people and it's, you know, we get more ribbon cuttings and it's, it, everyone's kind of happy, right. In, right. In the right. Year. But, but we, we overlook so many of the invisible infrastructure dimensions that, that, you know, state and local leaders, they're the ones who know this, right. They know my problem isn't constructing the new road, right. To, to quote unquote, reduce congestion, which is totally you know, <laughs> right, right, right. That just like that, that whole measure of of congestion reduction, not not serving people. That's a whole other conversation. But mm-hmm. but they know that their challenge is fixing the pipes, right? That have to get that the deferred maintenance that we have to you know where we're not having these ribbon cutting ceremonies where it's often underground, it's buried, it's dirty. Um, no one even wants to look at it. You know, it's it's kind of and, and we've especially realized this now with I, I do a lot of work on on water infrastructure and. You know, it's no accident that our water utilities are kind of at the the margins of our of our regions. They're kind of seen as service providers, when in reality they're they're anchor institutions, they're economic yes. anchors, and and what they do is is not just a service, but it's an essential community function that props up our local economies, protects our environment, and and does so much more. And so by overemphasizing the spending aspect and the stimulation sort of aspect, we overlook the generational nature of these investments, that what we build out is something that has to be managed and maintained for 50, hundred years or even more. And that's just harder to measure. So I think that's why uh, nationally, but also economists shy away from that because it's, it's harder to measure. We don't know. It relies on projections. There's, there's just so much uncertainty, especially right now.
0: I've actually gotten to the point where if you gave me the option we have massive liabilities today. Cities are just drowning in infrastructure liabilities. But if you said to me, Chuck, uh, we can spend $2 trillion on infrastructure or we can spend zero, your choice, I-, I would pick zero. And I would pick zero because it feels like the channels that have been set up to receive this money are designed to, in a sense, double down, triple down, quadruple down on these legacy approaches. Because they're driven more by the economists than by the needs of people. That sounds kind of trite, because I, I don't think economists are not people, although sometimes I question, you know that. But you know, the idea that the person who's having difficulty crossing the street in the struggling neighborhood would somehow get some trickle-down benefit from some massive infrastructure spending that would double the size of a roadway when people start with that i just kind of throw them out you you have no credibility to me why should i have any you know faith or any any optimism that a you know a build back better plan now or a stimulus bill now coming through could be done differently what what glimmer of hope is there that we could do this differently you know between the two of us i feel like the deeply cynical one here in terms of this infrastructure conversation and do you have some of that cynicism too?
1: Oh, absolutely. It, look, like we can look at, you know, the ASCE report card that comes out every few years. There's a lot of cynicism and it's 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 merited cynicism. But for so long we have lived with that cynicism that, you know, it helps sometimes to think affirmatively, to think proactively, not ask why is our infrastructure holding us back, but what can our infrastructure do for us, right? How yeah. can it be a foundation for opportunity? For addressing our climate needs for, for so many of our challenges. So less asking ourselves the limitations of what we're in, but more the possibilities of what we can do in years to come. And and so for the point of the two trillion versus zero, right, I probably fall a little in between that. Of I don't think it's- really <laughs>
0: No, the- I was saying, if you get <laughs> one or the other, like that's your choice. <laughs> yeah. You, you um, can't split the baby. You've got to do one or the other.
1: I, I do think more investment is, is needed and warranted, but- um, there is a tremendous danger of just through political expediency, especially in Washington, of just getting money out there. Um, and, and let's be real: states and localities will want it because they want their fix, right? Like they're absolutely, yeah, they'll they'll want it. But some things that we're talking about here, Chuck, aren't again aren't about the money. It's about how are we talking about our infrastructure needs, right? That that doesn't sort of money, there aren't dollar signs attached to that. Of course, when it comes to planning, maybe there is, and and staffing resources and regions to start talking about infrastructure in new ways. But it isn't you know, like the same amount as dumping a ton of money into building a new bridge, let's say. And so what gives me hope anyway, certainly across the country, this is nothing new. We have heard this for, for years. I can point to so many places <laughs> across the country that are trying new things, trying to learn from each other, um, really have rolled up their sleeves at a very difficult time to try to put people first uh, beyond projects. So a lot of good is happening besides the the obvious challenges in Texas and other places that we see in the in the media every day. But what gives me me hope, Chuck, at least federally speaking, is that we are talking about um our infrastructure needs in new ways. That under this this bigger, build back better sort of you know, campaign slogan <laughs> in some ways. The pieces uh, are coming into place. At least I see it. Of you have some of the the, the people, you know, what was Mayor Pete now Secretary Pete, right? Uh, in the Department of Treasury, for example, uh, Janet Yellen emphasizing that we need to have a climate hub to how we are talking about how we even spend money. I mean, that is hugely relevant to our our infrastructure uh, decision making process, and it's it's not just siloed to to the Department of Transportation or to the Department of Energy or to the Environmental Protection Agency. But, but actually, it's a whole, whole coordinated federal approach to how we're talking about these needs. That, that gives me hope. Of course, the jury <laughs> is still out. It's, 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 it's very different, especially once you start to get on Capitol Hill, where there are a lot of deeply entrenched interests and very powerful interests to keep what we have going right now, because there's a lot of money sloshing around where there are a lot of vested interests and so trying to change that is going to be very difficult politically it's going to be fraught with you know a lot of not just difficult conversations but but political battles and it's probably going to go beyond a lot of people are pointing to this fall you know the next surface transportation bill reauthorization that that's kind of if there isn't a big stimulus package coming out that's going to kind of be the natural place for infrastructure to live and i just hope that in our interest and enthusiasm to do something that we're not, again, because of that expediency to do something, we're doing something that is not going to create that generational uh, foundation for for some of these issues that we're talking about.
0: Right, you look at that, those men in those smoke-filled rooms in the 1950s, and it feels like for better or for worse, they had a vision for what America was. You know, we're gonna build highways, we're gonna build them wide. We're gonna build them big. We're gonna build them everywhere. We're gonna get people into cars and into homes. And, and this is going to create this new version of America that is going to be awesome. And everyone, you know, and sure, maybe we don't care about minorities and maybe we don't care about this, but eventually they'll be, they helped too. So like, whatever, just go along with it. And it seemed like we had a national consensus that like that was our path to, to prosperity. Maybe I'm deeply cynical here out in, you know, central Minnesota, small town America, looking at this, but it seems like the last thing we have is kind of consensus over a vision of what the next version of America should look like. And it's funny because you brought up Janet Yellen and, and having climate be part of our economic policy. And I hear what you're saying and I'm I'm with you. I think you and I could maybe do this, but when I hear the, the treasury department's going to do it, I think, well, yeah, we're going to give money to Elon Musk we're gonna, you know, have everybody driving Teslas now. We're gonna put solar panels on everybody's roof. And the fact that we could make so much progress just by having people who can take three block walks have a safe three block walk—that would cost like two percent of the money we would spend on this other stuff. But that wouldn't create the jobs and the economic and get the capital flow. Talk me down from the ledge, man, because I I want to believe. <laughs> I'm beat down by this.
1: You're right. I will say that back to our earlier point on failure, right? And yeah, yeah. The U.S., unlike some of our, you know, I would consider our developed country peers in, in Europe and, and and other parts of the, of the world where, you know, infrastructure, we're at a point of repair. We're in an era of repair and replacement, right? We're not in an era of just like new construction, even though that's the policy framework we're still operating off of. Right. Um, America historically has been a country of manifest destiny, right? Like growth yeah. like, or is good, like bigger is good. And we've had so much land area to play with when you think of a, a state like Minnesota and, and Midwest, like we can greatly color outside the lines if we want. And and not with like, I mean, obviously like repercussions we see in the distances people have to travel and the and the maintenance of those overbuilt assets. But But, you know, when you think of a country like Japan or some European countries, much smaller land areas, not as much flexibility to paint outside the lines. Uh,
0: I was in a meeting once with Andrew, Andy Card, the former transportation secretary, chief of staff. And he said in the Northeast, it's so hard to do anything because everything's so packed. But in Texas, we got all kinds of room to build all kinds of stuff. And I'm like, that's absurd. In Texas, it's so far apart. It's cost so much to do anything. Like, what are you talking about? But yeah, it's, we have all this
1: room, right? That's right. And, and, the reason I bring that up is, um, and, 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 you know, give credit to some of my, my colleagues, uh, Aditi Homer, who I work with very closely at Brookings, you know, we we say that, you know, America with the manifest destiny is special, you know, quote unquote, uniquely right. different in usually a positive way, right? It's like, well, we do it better because we're America. And it's like, sometimes like we're uniquely different and that we do things really badly right. <laughs> because we have the land to play with because we have this one track mind of just building a bunch of stuff that has not led to good outcomes for, for good people. And now we're kind of like, we've made the bed and now we're living in it. And what I'll say related to the, to the treasury point where I hope it gives you a, a little more <laughs> confidence and why I'm a little excited about it is Americans respond to incentives, financial incentives. They respond to market forces that how it affects what, what dollar bills are in their wallets to, you know, how much uh, state and local leaders are spending to what the private sector is involved in any of this, like they respond to market signals, like regardless of what other regulatory frameworks are in place, policy and planning frameworks are in place that may work in in a European context in some ways, because there there is that, I would argue that more progressive ideal of, you know, we need to, to save the climate, right? Like climate change is, is, is a priority. What are you talking about? And in the US, it's like, there's certainly segments of the population and leaders who believe in that, but there's certainly many others who, who do not. And so how can you change behavior? It's you know, through those those market mechanisms that can hopefully shift thinking. And so there there's a timeline to all of this, right? Where we can't go from zero to sixty, you know, in the course of a few months uh, of, of where we've just been going in reverse for many years. Uh, right. We have to create the appropriate incentives financially, I believe, this is not just about spending more money, right? But it's creating the frameworks that we are incentivizing certain actions and behavior where we are building in different ways. We are building in ways that are denser, that that prioritize walkability, accessibility, improve climate outcomes. And, and so that that's why, you know, as it comes to, to Treasury's role, in addition to, of course, traditional uh, infrastructure agencies, Department of Transportation, and so on, they all have to be on the same page with this stuff because it, it's not gonna be just one agency or one person uh, doing all this. It's gonna require coordinated action at a federal level along with and crucially led by states and localities who are the ones that are gonna be pioneering a lot.
0: Let me give you a little bit of pushback because I hear what you're saying. And I think intellectually, we, we agree on this. To me, the, the, the most real bit of feedback is for a local community. And we can say local government, but I think it's it's bigger than that. I think a, a place of people being able to actually maintain their own stuff. That feedback has been broken for a long time. And, and I can say as an engineer, years ago when I would do engineering projects for cities, we would never evaluate our long-term capacity to maintain anything we built. So that was never part of our analysis, never part of our equation. We didn't bother to even think about it. it it's funny because you know, you, you made a point about how America, we look at ourselves as exceptional and I, I get that, I buy into that, I understand that. It works two ways. I think about like the Chinese ghost cities Mm-hmm. how we look at them and we're like what a messed up economy that would go out and build a city with nobody living in it how ridiculous you know what a backward communist centralized economy look at what it produces and then i go to look at our cities and we have the ghost infrastructure
1: mm-hmm.
0: with like not enough capacity to 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 make use of it let alone maintain it and sustain it and take care of it and I'm like, we, we have done this writ large across an entire nation. What kind of incentive do you put in place that's more powerful than the, the fact that at City Hall, you don't have even a fraction of the money you need to fix the pipe that is essential to your community, yet because of the federal dollars, you're going to go build more pipe. How does this breakdown get resolved?
1: Right, I mean, and this also too, Chuck. I mean, we could have a whole second hour <laughs> yeah, yeah. talking about this. It deals with infrastructure governance too. Um, that right. federalism, you know, federal, state, local. Say nothing of the private sector. The way in which we manage our systems is probably broken, right? Like that, right. we're, we're yeah,
0: not, yeah, yeah,
1: We're not just like measuring these needs, you know, inaccurately and and you know, a lack of you know, comprehensive view towards many uh, other different types of people, particularly vulnerable infrastructure users. Um, but it's a, it's a question of infrastructure governance. If there is to be a national strategy, one that, that looks to incentivize and encourage uh, different actions. I mean, what my co-author uh, Shalini and I recommended was really a sequential approach. Uh, again, this is not gonna change overnight. We need to realize that just as infrastructure again is generational, we're talking about a pretty long timeline here (laughs) of of what could really lead to to true long-term structural change to how we do things. But we can begin to create a roadmap to rather than just going in reverse.
0: I've been saying do less harm, like, like do it. Well, that's a huge aspiration. Do no harm. I'm not even like there yet. Let's let's do less harm. Correct. Okay.
1: (laughs) Correct. No. and, And so, you know we we lay out four steps in this of one being kind of a, what i mentioned before this public engagement right yep. we yep. think of covid you know of course has been just hugely negative for many many reasons but right. there are silver linings in that through virtual platforms we getting um, used to this right there are new ways yeah. there are there are new Uh-oh. ways to engage with the public so Public engagement is is number one. Number two is strategic planning and analysis. So looking not only at at new projects, but at our existing failures and liabilities. That's kind of part two. So one of measurement. Part three is really community-led infrastructure experiments and installations or pilots. We see this through like pop-up projects, for example, of Let's give give residents an idea of what this alternative future could look like, right? We're not building out huge things right now because we don't have the money, but let's give an idea of of what infrastructure can be and what it can mean for a community. And then step four is, I think, more of what we're talking about, which is is longer term and needs to happen, you know, in parallel to these actions are the larger scale uh, project capital, you know, to not just build new stuff, but to outright remove existing assets that just are continuing to lead to a legacy of harm. And and so we see this a lot with highway removal projects, for example. I mean, these are projects that have huge dollar signs attached to them. Places like, you know, Syracuse, other cities across the country are dealing with this right now of... They have no choice; like they have to do something because the the <laughs> the elevated highway is about to break down. So they have to do something. But so it, it's it's really this sequential approach, I think, Chuck. That that is so essential here, and hopefully can get the ball moving in the right direction.
0: It's interesting because I I read that this is a follow up piece you wrote to the first one, and the follow up one we'll link to in the in the stuff too. It's four steps to undo the harms of legacy infrastructure in COVID nineteen recovery. If we start with that last one, to me, that was the, if we're going to go in with the economist-led strategy where we just need to spend money um, and get money out there and get it going. To me, the idea of removing these harmful legacy projects, I feel like that could almost, we could screw that up and still have it work out okay. There's a limit to how much downside that's gonna have. I I look at my little hometown here, and if we just fix the four blocks in the middle of town where the highway runs through the middle of the city and said, we're gonna make this four nice urban blocks. We could do it poorly, but there's a limit to how bad that could be done. I'm talking to people in Austin, Texas who want to take Highway 35 that runs through the the middle of the city, runs right by the university, right through the core of the city, cut across a, a bunch of historic neighborhoods that are now separated. They want to sink that and cap it. The DOT wants to buy more property and widen it out. Their project is like $5 billion. The sink and cap is a $10 billion project. To me, that's a place where a federal government could come in and say, we can be the difference maker here and do something. How much momentum do you think there is behind doing something like that? And it feels like Mayor Pete, as secretary, is the guy who actually could get something like that done. Am I being too idealistic here?
1: No, I mean, look, the reality is because of timing, not just with COVID and and the need for sort of a recovery agenda and all that, but just the timing of of the fact that these, these assets, these highways in many cases that something has to be done that's gonna force action, right? And so the challenge I think is, you know, as we've said many times before in this conversation, you know, like what's, what's, what's going to be productive action and realistic action versus just the sake of taking action. And, and usually the sake of just taking any action is gonna be just dumping money towards it. I think that's where the political motivations are gonna be very strong to just get more money out there. And, and that's true also, again, at a state and local level, there are places that, you know, we, we don't even know the long tail to the, you know, the COVID effects on on public budgets. Like they, if they see, you know, money spitting out of the ATM machine, like they're gonna probably grab it right. and, and do what they can with it because they just have no choice. But as it comes to there are models, federal models that have have emerged, you know, uh, obviously like the smart cities challenge at at Department of Transportation, FEMA's national disaster, resiliency competition. I, I look more towards at those. Competitive, flexible funds that that can be directed and targeted towards projects and and places—a people first and place based approach of of need. That's where I take some confidence in this. But but at the end of the day, those those competitions are a drop in the bucket. Um, they are not structural. They are not. <laughs> Anything they 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 can't even light a candle next to the the blowtorch that is like how we how we just spend money right now via formula and everything else across the country just in, that's just transportation right and right not, not even saying like water other types of infrastructure to say nothing of our housing challenges at the moment and and I, I'm a firm believer in how we address our transportation challenges has to coincide with our land use challenges the analogy I use, it's kind of like a, a Gorgon knot, right? When you pull one string out, it tightens the rest of it. And it, it, it's really, really hard. I have hope that you know, leaders like uh, Secretary Pete, again, uh, Secretary Yellen, and their peers across other, other cabinets say nothing of, of, on the Hill, that they're saying the right things, but you know, saying something can only go so far until it comes to actual action. Um, and I do think federal agencies have a lot they can control here. Uh, I, I do think that there are certain levers they can pull to, again, to rethink of how we're talking about these needs, to including climate, for example, environmental justice as top line items, even just on the website, right, where they've been just like missing. i going to make a big difference. But when it comes to, to, you know, almost the snowball effect, right, like, you just have to get the ball rolling down the hill. Like, that's the stage that we're in right now. We're not there yet, right? And and right. I have to see that proof of concept.
0: I don't think it's a stretch to say that there's a large overwhelming amount of support for the idea of fix it first amongst like the general American population. I think when we look at other people's communities, not our own, when we look at other places, we're like, why are they building that? They should be fixing what they have. When we look at our own, we're like, oh yeah, we really need this. <laughs> but, but let's take that hypocrisy out of it. There's a certain... I think just as a slogan, the idea of fix it first kind of works because we recognize that good, prudent, thoughtful people should take care of what they have before they build a bunch of new stuff. I have run into so much pushback on Capitol Hill for this idea from places like unions and contractors and engineering associations. And it's, puzzled me because I say to the, the union people, like fixing it, you realize those are union jobs too, right? Like fixing it. And, and I say to the engineers, like, you know, you actually will get more money. Like the, the margins are higher on a maintenance contract than a new build contract. You, you actually have to do more engineering work to make something work. And, and you can justify it by adding a lot of value and a lot of, you know, like these are better projects but I still get the pushback. There's almost like a sense of, if we just stop this train of building new, 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 that somehow this like, long tail of, of stuff is going to dry up for them. This is what I get. And it, it makes me like, okay, how, how do I even have that conversation with people when fix it first seems anathema to them?
1: Yeah, there's the a lot of layers into what you just said, Chuck. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well,
0: we got we got five minutes left. So yeah, got... yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll try my best. Totally with you on fix it first, right? We hear this with dig once too, right? That yeah. We're gonna tear up a road. Let's let's do the water pipes too, right? And like, to Wait, do
0: I work- can't tell you how many projects I was involved in where we would take we would peel the road and then we'd come back and then we'd fix the pipe and fix the road again and then we'd fix the other pipe
1: and fix the road again.
0: Man. It's,
1: It's not. And it goes back to what I was saying before of infrastructure governance, right? It's not just about one project in one place, generating however many jobs or economic returns. It's how are we managing this collectively at a regional level in particular, where utilities are at the same table, whether in person or virtually, (laughs) with transportation departments, with also, by the way, Community-based organizations, workforce development boards, others who have traditionally not been seen as important in these infrastructure conversations, but I would argue, are hugely important when it relates to these legacy conversations. When we are again taking a people-first and place-based approach that goes beyond just an individual project, that has to involve different types of voices uh, around the table too, and how we manage these challenges. and And I've done a lot on on to your other point on, on workforce, uh, totally agree that because we we focus again on, on the ribbon cuttings and, and sort of the immediate construction, if you will, and in, in the first one, two, three years, well, once you build out that project, it's there for 30, 40, 50 years. How are we budgeting for that? Not only in terms of maintenance and repair, but but as part of that budgeting process, how are we budgeting for the people that are going to be using this and then actually maintaining it? and and a point that I make is that our infrastructure workforce challenges, but also our opportunities, are about long-term maintenance, repair, design positions. And they, the fact that these these positions pay equitable wages, that they have low barriers to entry, you know. And we hear this a lot from from the Biden uh, administration when it comes to you know a clean energy uh, job, you know, revolution. they're they're right in that it's not just about counting numbers of jobs, just like we shouldn't just count numbers of projects, but it's about the inclusion and and opportunity potential of these positions, of who is going to be filling these positions, who is going to be taking advantage of these career pathways. And it's that people aspect that has to be going alongside at all times, the, the physical infrastructure side of things. But again, the prevailing <laughs> political norms uh the engineering norms as 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 you know they are very strong <laughs> they are you know calcified that this is just how we've done things for a very long time and so we have to collectively as a country we have to provide those opportunities for nimbleness and flexibility where we can try new things where local leaders don't feel like they're just you know walking on on a tightrope <laughs> and, and sort of off on their own, you know, trying to experiment with these things, but it's actually part of the process of, Hey, you know, as part of, of doing this project or these collection of projects, we're going to budget for experimentation, for piloting, for engaging with people in new ways. And, and hopefully that can lead to to longer term change.
0: If you have in your brain, the person living in a city who, i'm just thinking like encapsulate what what our audience would think of as the disadvantaged person the person that they would like to see benefit from spending at the federal level or the person they see disadvantaged by our current system if you think about that person and you follow them through to this conversation about infrastructure investment and this conversation about the future of america i have kind of reached the conclusion myself that we would be better off to just give cities money instead of launder it through infrastructure spending, instead of laundering it through a, a transportation bill, just like give the mayor and the city council and the city manager money to just solve problems. Tell me if you care about that person and you recognize that we're not gonna do that, we're, we're gonna spend money through existing appropriation schemes and that's the way this is gonna work. What's the area where you would push the most for a reform or a change or a, a different way of doing things that you think would have the the greatest positive impact on that person? Where, where's the kind of zen point that you know Joe Kane is gonna say this is the this is where I'm gonna target that will have the greatest ripple effects?
1: Well and I think this is uh, on point, Chuck, too, to the state and local aid conversation that that's been brewing in in Washington and and across the country over the last few months is well, states and localities need <laughs> more money, right? Let's just give it to them. Infrastructure is like part of that slice, right? Like they're probably going to spend some of that money on infrastructure. It's not all going to infrastructure. It's probably going to right. education. You gave
0: cities today, you know, I've said this so many times, you go to a city and you're like, here's $10 million for an interchange, or here's $5 million to do what you want with. They would all take the $5 million. They would all take it.
1: Right. And let me be clear, like there is a need for that, like the the need for general flexible state and local aid, I think in my view, like as an economist, as a planner, (laughs) and as a policy wonk, like I think it's a no brainer that we should be doing that. That's let's just like put that to the side. Yeah. However, cities like want to to spend that money, like they'll know, right? Like they have to keep balanced budgets. Like they, I like you trust them.
0: <laughs> well, the, some will screw it up, but some will get it right. and And in time you would hope that they would all get closer to, to getting it right.
1: You know? Right. But but this other point you make on infrastructure specifically, and versus like this general pot kind of, of of funding, and and where we could best see the returns, particularly for disadvantaged households and and communities, you know, there, there's I think different sides to look at that. I mean, it, there's like right like lockbox kind of conversations. Of yeah. What, where are the revenues being generated? You know, should we be cycling those back into infrastructure? Um, I think there's there's different viewpoints on that. The reality is, you know, our 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 revenue streams are not infinite. I, I hear from from utilities, for example, in, including in declining places like Flint, you know, it's it's hard enough to raise rates and then to know that those rates are kind of a piggy bank for like other parts of government. So that is like not sustainable either. Right. But, so it's it's not just like the spending, if you will, it's also the revenue generation part of this that has to be considered. But but in terms of, of where the funding could be best targeted to help, help these people that are, are particularly struggling, I think in the short term, uh, Chuck, right now, I look towards affordability uh, programs. Uh, you know, We see this in customer assistance programs in, in utilities, both, both energy and water where there are shutoffs. I mean, if you can't wash your hands at home, uh, and, and I mean, the state of California just ran a study saying that they have over a billion dollars across 155,000 households, a $1 billion dollars of water debt where households are that far behind their water bills. And that's just one state. So you can just imagine what it is across the country. So that is a necessity that has to get like, there has to be support for those individuals if they can have those essential services at home. I've talked about it with my colleagues. That can be done through uh heap style programs. It can also be done through snap style programs or other broader Uh, government assistance that is more flexible, right? Which is why I think there's been motivation to do more stimulus payments, for example. So I I say that's the short term, the longer term, I, I would go back to the career pathways, the skills development, the training. We have a lot of individuals who are unemployed, underemployed in jobs that just are low wage, not good paying. Infrastructure can be a foundation for better pay better career growth, more opportunity, particularly for those who have been historically underrepresented in a sector that is, in many cases, aging, white, male, Uh, there's opportunity to to reach more and different types of people in this space. So I I look towards infrastructure's ability to connect people via workforce opportunities as being a medium term to longer term opportunity, again, not just on construction, as we were talking about, but in terms of operation, maintenance, and, and so on. Yeah.
0: Joseph Kane with the Brookings Institute. It's been a delightful conversation. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me, Chuck. Take it easy.
0: Thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care.
1: Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich, it's also a necessity to go on bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill a start. They know that America's one big pothole right now.
0: Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions.
1: Chuck Moron, this has been fascinating.
0: Oh, made this